It is good to be here because of this lady and because of this book. She has given her life to uh, studying the Bible and interpreting it to others her entire life. She was uh, on staff at Marble Collegiate uh, Church uh, with Norman Vincent Peale for 30 years. 37. 37 years. <laughs> Raise those eyebrows at me. <laughs> Do you know how old I am? Do you mind if I tell them your age? Do you mind if I tell them your age? No. Not, oh, 90? I'm 90. 90 years old. Let's give her a hand. Yeah. Uh, so, so out of respect for Sister Carol's age, if you have an electronic device, would you silence it? You don't have to turn it off. I just don't want to hear it. So take pictures if you like. Take videos. If you're on Facebook, post that you're here tonight. We appreciate the publicity. And uh, join me in anticipating uh, three journeys that changed our world, God's uh, word at work. Would you bow with me for prayer? Dear God, we thank you so much for your goodness to us. And tonight, we thank you for the goodness that is ours when Sister Carol is present. Be with her as she leads us. We express our gratitude to you for her diligence and preparation for uh, the way she can communicate truths of the Bible in ways that we can uh, receive and use. We pray that uh, you'll be with her during this lectureship and also as she travels home again. Be with us, O oh God, as we open your word and listen to one who knows it and can interpret it for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, good evening and thank you for this invitation to return. And thank you to all of you who have prayed for me during the past year as I tried my surgeon's patience not once but twice till he got my leg back attached. So uh, I'm thrilled to be able to be here with you. And for those of you who sent me greetings and get well cards, I had to go out and explain to our mailman why so many cards were coming to my mailbox. They didn't fit and he was afraid he would miss out on some great event in the news of the world. <laughs> I told him it was all the fault of the Baptists in Texas. So. <laughs> now, I'm absolutely delighted with the topic we're going to be looking at these three nights. I've called them three journeys that changed the world. My problem was I was hard-pressed to select the three journeys because our biblical ancestors spent more time out on the road than they did anywhere else. And I think it comes from the fact that when God began to put together this great God dream, which was his people, he called Abraham. And Abraham's call is in the book of Genesis in chapter 12. What comes in the first 11 chapters is prehistory. It's those famous stories, we know them all, creation, sin, Noah's Ark, the Tower of Babel, to explain some of the vast human problems. But history, upon which we can put dates, begins accurately with Abraham. We can date him almost to the button, somewhere around 1850 BC, before even I was born. <laughs> And what I love is the fact that the very first word that God says into human ears in human history is lech. Ah. 
In fact, he didn't just say that. He said, lech lecha. Got it? <laughs> Shall we say it in English? He said to Abraham, go. Go you. Where was he supposed to go? From your country and your land and your father's house into the land that I will show you. And that double go, I called a rabbi one time to get a commentary on that. And he laughed and he said, you could call any number of rabbis and you would get that many different interpretations. He said there is an imperative in it. There is a driving force in the tone that is used that Abraham is to get out and get there on the road. Because most of our English translations just say, go from the country that you are in, sort of dull-like, I like to call Abraham my go-go person. You know, he was the go-go boy that started everything. And from that moment on, we have a people on the move. They were for many years very largely a nomadic people. They were shepherds and they went wherever there was grass for the sheep. And God is always building up to something. And those of you who were here this morning, you had my famous prequel to tonight's class. So I'm not going back there. You are, all of you are, who were here are you know, doubly smarter than the people who are just coming tonight. <laughs> so be kind to them, all right? And I want to pick up this journey as God begins to fine tune the God plan. And the first step on the, the journey is what I have called for us tonight, the journey into community. God begins to form a people. And the first thing you're gonna to have to have if you're forming a people is some leadership. And so we have to start somewhere. So I am starting, for those of you who dutifully have brought your Bibles with you and want to follow along, I am starting in the book of Exodus in chapter three. And this is Moses, a youngish man who we all know because we all went to Sunday school or something. He was that little baby who was condemned to die, remember, and they put him in a little basket in the bulrushes and he was rescued by Pharaoh's daughter. You remember all the Moses stories? Some of you look bright and some of you look confused. Um, <laughs> Moses was saved. And one thing Moses got out of that tragic beginning to his life was he was raised in the palace of the Pharaoh of Egypt. And not only was he raised in the Pharaoh's palace, he had an Egyptian education. He went to Egyptian college, as it were. And then, as so often happens, his copybook got blotted. He became a defender of his own people, and he was forced to flee. And our story begins at what might be the lowest point in Moses' life. He was rescued, and then he was lost, and here he is, somewhere in the Sinai Peninsula, tending his father-in-law's sheep. Now that's pretty low down, think about it for a minute. A former Egyptian prince is in a desert area. He's minding not his own sheep, he doesn't have any, his father-in-law's sheep. 
And we are told that Moses led his flock. My translation, the New Revised Standard says, he led his flock beyond the wilderness. In Hebrew, it says he led his flock into the back of the beyond of the wilderness. Doesn't that sound like an exciting place to be? <laughs> I mean, there he is with sheep that don't belong to him and on this hard scrabble earth. And can he ever go home again? Does he have anything to look forward to? He probably is 17, 18 years old. He's a young man and it looks as though his life is worth nothing. And this is the moment that God taps him on the shoulder in this unlikely place. It looks to him as if there's a bush that's on fire. Everything was so dull in the back of the beyond of the wilderness that even a burning bush was exciting. And he goes to see what it is, and we all know, I think most of us know anyway, the story. He hears a voice speaking to him from the bush, and what the voice says is beyond belief, because the voice says, Moses, Moses, and here's a little clue for the rest of your lives. Whenever God speaks in the Bible, look and listen. Does he call the person by name once or twice? And when God does it twice, God means business. So listen very carefully. If you hear God calling you just once when you might be able to ignore it. If God calls twice, good heavens, listen. And Moses? answers the voice. Maybe he's so startled he says automatically, here I am. And what does God say to him? God says, come no closer. Take off your sandals, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And if this were today, Moses' answer would be, you have got to be kidding. <laughs> holy ground? He is in the hard scrabble back of the beyond of the wilderness. There is nothing holy about it at all. But God is teaching him the first truth if we're going to build a community. That wherever we are, God is. And where God is, it is holy. And as a result of that, we know that Moses gets this great mission from God. He is to go to Egypt and he is to tell his people the time has come and God is going to call them out of the slavery of Egypt and all of them are, there's a new Pharaoh on the throne. And as I said this morning, every Pharaoh who came to power built himself a new capital city. And the Israelites are slaving away building the newest of the new capital cities. They are the bricklayers and the brick makers of ancient Egypt. And Moses is to somehow go into Egypt and tell the Pharaoh that your bricklayers union has to all come with me out into the desert. Well, rightly, and I think Moses is just like all of us, Moses says, I don't think that's a good idea, God. And he and God have a very interesting dialogue in which Moses thinks of every single reason he possibly could come up with that, no, this is not what is to happen. And God says, yes, Moses, it is what is to happen. And God does the unthinkable. God reveals the God name to Moses. 
And we all know biblically that names are vitally important. The only problem is the name that God reveals comes to us as four Hebrew consonants, which cannot be pronounced because there are no vowels. So there is absolutely no way for us to pronounce this name. It often comes to us in English as Yahweh, Y-A-H-W-E-H, but that is not a word. It's simply enabling us to say this unthinkable, which is why if we all had Hebrew Bibles, they never put the vowels in. And every time they come to it in their reading, they stop and simply say the name out of respect for the name of God. But Moses is given this treasure. And then he goes back into Egypt. And I will not go through the whole Exodus journey because Cecil B. DeMille has filmed it for us. And all we have to do is turn it on and watch them coming out of Egypt. We have no idea how many they were. I know DeMille had a cast of thousands. Uh, I doubt sincerely they were that many but they're not a part of what we're talking about tonight. But Moses does lead them out, and he leads them out across the nearest exit way, which is across the Reed Sea, which was the marshy area next to where the Hebrews had been living. It no longer exists. The Suez Canal was built, and that whole isthmus of the Nile River was totally changed. So don't go looking for the Reed Sea. But the trick is, of course, Moses leads them across what is essentially marshland. And we all know what happens to land that has been soaked with water. And we also know that the Israelites are pursued by Pharaoh's army. And Pharaoh's army is using the latest in mechanized warfare. They are using iron chariots. As we learned this morning, they were introduced by the Hyksos peoples. But one of the problems if you have an iron wheel chariot and you drive it onto marshland, what is going to happen? Aha, uh -huh, you got it. You're going to be stuck in the mud. So this, you know, what DeMille does in the Ten Commandments with the walls of water to the right and the walls of water to the left, they really weren't necessary. We have the entire Egyptian army stuck in the mud, going absolutely nowhere, and the tide comes in. And the Israelites are all here on dry land. And I will take just one little excursion out of this story because I think it's one of the most absolutely delicious things in the Bible. Many of you when Harvey came, took refuge, right? You left home. Did you pack a bag to go? All right. And did any of you, when you got to wherever you were escaping to, did you ever say to yourself when you opened the bag, and why did I put that in there? <laughs> All right. You do that when you're in a hurry. What I love absolutely is, when they are, are all safely out of Egypt and the Egyptian army is lost, stuck forever in that mud, Moses sings a song of thanksgiving. And his sister Miriam says to the women, our turn. And every one of these Hebrew mothers and daughters opens the knapsack that she packed with the things her family was going to need 
and they all whip out their tambourines. <laughs> I think it is absolutely the most wonderful verse in the Bible, and I'm not making it up. It's in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20. And the prophet Miriam, Aaron's sister, Moses' sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And they danced for joy on this first step of their journey. Can you think of anything more wonderfully human and delightful? They probably left behind something vital, like somebody's extra tunic or the frying pan, but they've got the tambourines, and music is going with them. And Moses then leads them, and I think lead is probably a very loose word, because this was a motley group of men, women, children, some hangers-on, some rabble-rousers, whenever a bunch of people go by, somebody joins to see what it might be. And they finally find themselves at what I think is this crucial first step out of Egypt. They find themselves before the great mountain, Mount Sinai, in chapter 19 of Exodus, where they're going to be taking this first great step on how to become a people. We do not know, I wish we knew more, but there's no way to find out, how all those years that they had been in Egypt from the time Joseph invited his father and all of his brothers to come down during the famine, which is a good three to 400 years before what we have here. We are now probably somewhere around the 13th century BC, somewhere the Hebrews had kept alive the fact that they had a God. And they never fell into Egyptian idolatry in any large numbers. The Egyptians had a very complex system of deities. Many of them were sun deities. Most of the ancient peoples had some kind of a religion. Atheism is a very modern thing. There were no atheists until the 19th century. Everybody believed in something because everybody respected a power greater than themselves. But somehow the Hebrews kept their belief in their God. But what they believed, we do not know. And how they worshiped, we have absolutely no idea. But their religious formation is going to be, begin right here on Mount Sinai, where Moses summons the people. And they stand there in this wilderness area. And be careful when you see the word wilderness in the Bible. It doesn't necessarily mean Sahara Desert, vast emptiness. The wilderness is always in opposition to urbanization. A wilderness is where no one lives permanently. It's the emptiness. And so these, these very impressive mountains, which constitute the Mount Sinai family, rise up there. And Moses tells them, that this is where they are going to meet the Lord. And the Lord says to Moses, I'm going to come down to you in a dense cloud in order that the people may hear what I speak to you, and so they will trust you ever after. And this is going to be key to understanding this God of the Hebrews. They have a God like no other deity in the ancient world. They have a God who speaks. 
And God is going to speak to them from Mount Sinai by making a covenant with them, a contract. Now, we all have contracts in our lives. We signed leases and we signed mortgages and we sign all kinds of things. By the time you finish signing the papers in a doctor's office, you've signed away your life practically, right? We're used to signing things. Well, the ancient world had very elaborate symbolisms for agreeing to things. They were not a writing people. They were a speaking people. So if two people agreed, they would shake hands. And those, the meetings of the body, it made two people one when you shake hands with someone. And therefore, never again can you be enemies. Or two people say, well, that's a deal. And they sit down and have a meal together. Never again can they be enemies because they have sealed it. Or they slaughter an animal and sprinkle the blood on each other. And that's a symbol that life has taken over. And so God comes to have a solemn covenant with these people. And he is, they sacrifice an animal representing what they're about to do. And Moses takes the blood and sprinkles some of it on them and some of it on the mountain, which represents God. And then God is going to speak to them and to give them the rules for being in a community. And we all know those rules for being in a community. Because I imagine most of us somewhere along the line met the Ten Commandments. Is that correct? All right. There are some churches I know print them right on the wall to make sure everybody has them before their eyes. And we call them the Ten Commandments, and I wish we didn't. Because the Hebrews never called them the Ten Commandments. Because that word commandment has something of kind of like urgency and you better do this or... Instead, these are simply 10 words from God. And before we go any further, I have to say something about the importance of the word biblically. There are two signs of life in the Bible. One is blood, because they knew if you bled enough, you would die. And the other is breath. Or word, because you can't talk if you don't have any breath in you, correct? So therefore, the very fact that you speak is a sign that you are alive, correct? Now, some of you are moving your mouth and saying, yes, you're agreeing with me. So therefore, I think you're alive. <laughs> some of the rest of you, I'm not quite sure, all right? But that's all right. If we stupefy you, that's okay. All right. And so they're given these 10 basic rules that if they are going to start to be God's people, this is what they have to do. And the first thing, of course, is so obvious. We say, well, of course, God says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other God. Does that make good sense? I think so. All right. And you shall not, God clarifies that, you shall not make any idols, whether in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water. You will not bow down and worship them. For I, the Lord, I am a jealous God. I'm the God alone, and I will be jealous of anybody else who wants to take my role. 
And then he goes on to say, and you shall not make the wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. Sometimes when I was riding on the subways of New York City, I used to long for somebody to stand up and say, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. I assure you, this is, we live in a society that's totally forgotten this one. And then God moves from the fact that God has established who the God is and how that God is to be respected. And then God asks that we take a day, a Sabbath day, a day of rest, and we make it a holy day. And I would like to remind you that the Ten Commandments appear, the Ten Words from God, appear twice in the Bible. They are here enumerated in chapter 20 of the book of Exodus, and they are in the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 5. Now, Deuteronomy is a very interesting book. As I said this morning, every great biblical personage almost without exception, gets to make a speech before he dies. They all have enough breath left to make a deathbed speech. We come to Moses, he gets the whole book of Deuteronomy. I mean, he had a lot of breath left within him. And he has, part of his long talk, is a reminder of everything that God has done for them. And he repeats the 10 words from Mount Sinai. In Exodus, which we're looking at right now, the reason for taking one day off every week was to remind ourselves that the Lord took six days to create the world, and on the seventh day, God rested. Remember that from Genesis 1, all of us, right? In Deuteronomy, a lot of time has passed. And Moses says then, that the one day a week shall be taken off because you should remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and you are now a free person. You are no longer a slave. So whether you celebrate your Sabbath day because God created and then rested and you enjoy God's world on the Sabbath day or whether you are reminding yourself you are no longer a slave and you have the right to take a day off, I think both reasons would be excellent reasons for our reviving in ourselves the sense of the Sabbath day because most people no longer have a Sabbath day. Sunday is a work day for many people. What about you? Do you take a day off? Sometimes we use our day off to catch up on all the work we didn't do on the other six days. <clears throat> it's just a little nudge that I think our consciences need. I know uh, those 37 years that I was at Marble, I taught every Sunday morning. And to get to that class, I traveled for two hours on an interstate bus. And then I taught my class and I got back on an interstate bus and I traveled two more hours so you know where my Sunday went. But I always took the, uh, one other day, I usually took Monday as my day off, my Sabbath day, because I had to remind myself that I was not a slave and we need to make certain for both our body and our soul that we have time to breathe. That's what I'm saying the Sabbath day should be. To breathe and to say, thank God that I breathe. 
And so God, here in the beginning, sees this danger that we might sometimes forget that our very humanity requires us to rest. And then God lays out the rest of what he wants his people to do and be. They are to honor their fathers and mothers. And that commandment comes with a blessing so that you may have a long life. And you may enjoy these people who gave you life. It's a respect for life. And then he lays down very simply, and I'm using he because I have to use some pronoun to talk of God, how we can live with each other. We are not to murder each other. It does not say, by the way, in Hebrew, thou shalt not kill. It says thou shalt not murder. And that's different, I think. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. And that's all you need. These are the rules for community life. There is a God. <clears throat> he made us. We should be grateful. And then let us live respecting that in each person we meet. The person sitting next to you is another creation of God. And through this moment on Mount Sinai, God says, and all of you are now going to be my people, and we are going to go forward learning how to live and work together with each other. And I would love to say that the story ends right there. And they lived happily ever after. <laughs> But as I remember, happily ever after is at the end of a whole category of stories we call what? Fairy tales. Uh-huh, the fairy tales. The once upon a times which never were and which never came true. Because this is a very, very human group of people. And they start out on this journey, covenanted together. They have agreed to all of these terms seems to them absolutely fine. And they don't go very far before they start to complain. Guess what? There isn't any water. And the food they brought with them, they're getting tired of. And every place they look, it seems to be more wilderness and no end. And so we begin what has come down to us as this 40 days of wandering in the desert that turn into 40 years. And actually, we have no idea how long they were in the desert, because 40 is a biblical term which simply means a very long time. They did not have their cell phones with them, so they could not keep track of what day it was, and they did not have calendars. So what we have to take the truth of the story is when it, we are told that they spent 40 years there, it is simply a, a long, long time while they learn two very vital things. They learn to live with each other, and they learn, each of them, that community life means sometimes giving in to the other fellow and letting him or her go first. It's a very hard lesson. It is not easy to travel that way. <clears throat> but the beginning of the book of Numbers, which 
follows along. I'll I'll say something about Leviticus, which I seem to be skipping, but I'm not really. But the book of Numbers talks about the way in which they travel and the way in which they camp. Because once God has spoken to them, they want to make very certain that they never forget what God said. And so they take the God word, and we know what they do. They inscribe it on two pieces of stone. And they choose stone or rock because it was one of their other names for God. Stone was the most durable thing they knew. None of them ever lived long enough to see stone erode under wind and rain and freezing and thawing. And so for them, stone was unchangeable. And so they took these words God had given them and they put them, some key word, on two pieces of stone. I do not know what they looked like. I have not seen what was in the Ark of the Covenant. Neither have you. I know only one thing. They were not 10 Roman numerals. (laughs) There weren't any Roman numerals because there weren't any Romans. (laughs) Something was there. And then they made a little box for it. And they carried it with them. Now, when we talk about this 40 year, this long wandering in the desert, it doesn't mean they were always on the go. They couldn't have been. They would stop at fertile places long enough to plant a crop, maybe for a season, and to let it grow. They had animals that had to be fed and watered. But when they camped, they had a very careful encampment arrangement. And that's what's in the very beginning of the book of Numbers in chapter 2. Three tribes camped toward the north, and three to the south, and three to the east, and three to the west. And in the center of the camp was a tent for the Ark of the Covenant with God's word in it. They always camped around the word of God. And I'd like you to just get yourself a mental picture of that for one moment. To me, it is so heartwarming to think of these wandering people on their way into a land of promise and they have no idea what it's going to be like and where it is. But their God has spoken to them, and their God has said he would be with them, and they have now a concrete visible sign in the Ark of the Covenant that he is with them. And they camp around him in every campsite. And when the line of march forms and they are to move on to another camping place, six tribes go in front, The Ark of the Covenant is in the center, and six other tribes are the rear guard. The Lord is always surrounded by his people. And there's one other little piece that those who were here this morning will want to make certain I have emphasized. When they were in Egypt, Joseph died there. And Joseph said to them, those who survived, If you ever should leave this land, do not leave me behind. Take me with you. And Joseph's body was mummified and put in a box. And when they came out of Egypt on this great march, they brought that box with them. And all through this desert wandering, somebody every day is carrying Joseph's little box of bones. 
and they will carry it for the 40 years until they get to the land of promise where they will finally bury Joseph. Believe it or not, it's all in the Bible. I'm not making it up. So we have a couple of things to carry. We have those who are bearing the Ark of the Covenant on their shoulders, probably maybe four men with like a little thing fixed, and somebody else, a couple of fellows, who are carrying Joseph. These are people of long memories, and it was at least 400 years before when Joseph said, carry me with you, they never forgot. We write everything down because we're going to forget it instantly. <laughs> and so across the desert they go, complaining all the way. It's one of the things I find so absolutely human about them. And sometimes their complaints are justified and sometimes they are not. They complain because they look back to the place where they were in slavery and what do they, as they look back, whenever we look back, how are things when we look back? Oh, they were so much better back there. Those, the good old days, absolutely. Thank you for the person who said that. And so they look back to those days of slavery in Egypt and they said it was wonderful back there. We could eat fish for nothing and they had garlic and leeks and onions back there. Can you imagine that being the thing you would most miss if you were tramping across the, the, the no lands, all right? And so they complain and so they rebel. And out of those rebellions, one day when poor Moses had almost had it, they were complaining because they didn't have food that they wanted and they got up in the morning and they looked out and there on the ground was something. And they didn't know what it was. So in Hebrew, <clears throat> they all said, man, who? Which is, what is it? All right. And man, who turned out to be the secretion of an insect, a little bit like crystallized honey today. And they could just scrape it right off the top of the land, mix it with this flour they'd been lugging with them, and they were tired of making tasteless bread, and now they had sweet bread. And so they thought, oh, what a great idea. And the next day they got up, it was there again, but they had to clear it off the surface of the ground. Until some enterprising fellow probably said, why are we working so hard? Let's get a bunch of us together, let's get a whole lot of it gathered, and we'll have a little supply here for the week. And Moses had said, God will send this to you every day. So the next day they get up and they look at this pile they had made. And guess what's happened to the manhu? It has decayed, totally inedible, horrible stuff. And Moses said, I told you it's going to come every day, but you have to work for it every day. And that's where they begin to learn another very human lesson. Every day we have to get up and every day we have to do our everyday jobs, except when they came to the sixth day of the week. And Moses said, now on this day, you can gather twice as much and it will not spoil during the night. And when they got up on the Sabbath day, it had not spoiled. But there were some people 
who didn't gather twice as much on the sixth day. They said, we'll do our part tomorrow morning. And they got up on the Sabbath day and guess what? Nothing there. Now we can smile at these people, but don't they sound very human? Don't they sound like people we might know? And it is through this process of trial and error, through the process of a windstorm that interfered with the flight of the quail, and suddenly there were birds everywhere. We were going to have roast quail that night for dinner. All they had to do was pick them off the ground. God was caring for them, and at the same time, God was teaching them a very important lesson. Listen to me and learn that every day you have a God and every day you have a duty. But they were dense. And that gives me enormous courage. Now, I'm going to stop and say, do we have a question or two before we have a break? <clears throat> Stupefied. Look at that. Yes. You said that, and I could be wrong in my reading of the Bible, but you said that ten men went. What happens when he has to go and God has to write them again? Um, I went r rapidly, and I, you're absolutely correct. Moses wrote them down once. And he came back down and found that Aaron had been having a little adventure. The people thought Moses was gone too long. And so he asked them for their jewelry and he made them a golden calf. And Moses said, what are you doing? And Aaron had the nerve to say, I asked for their jewelry and they gave it to me and I put it in the fire and look what came out, a golden calf. <laughs> and Moses, I mean, that's another human trait. And Moses smashed the commandment. And then he went back up and made another set. So they, got, they were given to them twice, but the very same words. But you were very good to pick up on that. I was just moving rapidly, and you were left back, and I'm glad you caught up with us. Thank you. <laughs> That's good. See, some of you did go to Sunday school. Oh, thank God. All right. Well, let's take a little break, stretch, stand up, get smart, because we have another little adventure before this night is over.